You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 29, the fifth in our series of episodes detailing the Gallipoli campaign. Last week, we covered the landings on the five beaches on the tip of the peninsula at Cape Helles, so all of the troops are now ashore. The Anzac troops from Australia and New Zealand now find themselves in a shallow beachhead at Anzac Cove. The 29th Division and the Royal Naval Division are ensconced in the trenches not too far from their landing beaches at Helles. None of the landings had really achieved their goals, so now they had to launch more attacks to try and get further inland. Today, we will discuss these attacks that began shortly after the landings and went throughout the entire summer. But first, we will talk a little bit about the fighting conditions that the troops had to endure while they were living and fighting on the peninsula. The fighting conditions at Gallipoli would go on to become one of the great legacies of the campaign. The flies, the heat, the diseases, the thirst, all of it is well documented in all histories of the campaign. It is quite important to remember these conditions when we talk about the battles and actions during the campaign, because while these men were asked to fight their enemies day in and day out for most of 1915, they also had to fight the environment. To put it simply, it was a nightmare. Lieutenant Patrick Duff of the Royal Field Artillery would have this to say about what had happened to the land just a few weeks after the landings. Quote, you know the pictures in the papers of such and such place after German occupation? Well, this place was a perfect garden when we first came. Already, the ground is cut up into trenches, and the horses have stamped the grass away. Engineers have put long wooden troughs where the old walls stood before, and the trees are torn to pieces to make screens for guns. By the time fresh troops arrive behind us, it will be bare as rock. End quote. In this environment, much like on the Western Front, cover was scarce, and snipers ruled the battlefield between attacks. 
If anyone showed themselves above the trench, they were likely to be shot. This is a quote from Private Bertram Willis. Quote, The snipers are a menace. They seem to be everywhere, and they are very clever at concealing themselves. The sun and flies are terrible, and one cannot obtain water to quench the thirst. The dead Turks in front and our own fellows lying at the back of us are beginning to smell. End quote. The slow drain of casualties was bad enough, but perhaps the biggest problem was that the men were prevented from burying the dead that lay between the lines. Gallipoli gets hot in the summer. Really hot. Really, really hot. And really hot temperatures and dead, unburied bodies are an incredibly bad mix. Captain Albert Muir of the 29th Division, quote, One gets used to anything in war. But I think that the acrid, pungent odor of the unburied dead, which gets into your very mouth and down your tortured throat, and seems even to taint the taste of your food, is really the worst thing you have to face on active service. Before long you grow quite inured, if not indifferent even, to the sight of the unburied dead. But to the death smell, no one can grow used or callous. Rot and decay, and the stench of putrefaction, are the supreme and final degradation of our flesh. And the uncontrolled nausea that the smell of the dead too long unburied must cause the living is not, I believe, solely a physical nausea. But, except through one's nostrils, one grows steeled, if not dense and heartless. You see horrible sights which in peacetime would make you gorge rise uncontainably, and you take them, in the swelter of war, as a matter of course. At Anzac, the situation got so bad that by May the 24th, there was a ceasefire agreed to for the sole purpose of burying the dead that were found between the lines. A literal line was drawn down the middle of no man's land, and both sides carried their dead back behind their lines. They then delivered the dead of the other side across the line so that they could be buried. Corporal Charles Livington found himself as one of the men standing on the line and watching for any funny business. Quote, we stood together some twelve feet apart, quite friendly, um, exchanging coins and other articles, and in some cases we were able to communicate. A Turk gave me a beautiful Sultan's Guard belt buckle made of brass with a silver star and crescent embossed with the Sultan's scroll in Arabic. All I had to give him in exchange were a few coins. Our troops carried the dead Turkish bodies over the dividing line, and the Turkish troops did the same for our dead. We also handed their rifles back to them. These rifles were laying on the ground, but we first removed the bolts. The armistice lasted until approximately 6 p.m., and almost immediately the Turks opened fire on our parapets. We were once again enemies. End quote. To add to these miseries were the flies. Flies dominate any soldier's discussion about being on the Gallipoli Peninsula through the summer. They were just literally everywhere. Private Harold Boughton, quote, One of the biggest curses was the flies. There was millions and millions and millions of flies. The whole of the side of the trench used to be one black swarming mass. Anything you opened, if you opened a tin of bully or went to eat a biscuit, next minute it would be swarming with flies. They were all around your mouth and on any cuts and sores that you'd got, which would all turn septic through it. This was a curse, really. It really was. End quote. 
a gunner from the Royal Field Artillery speaks a bit more about how hard it was to eat under the constant watch of the flies. Quote, We were invaded by millions of flies. There was no escape from these beastly insects. They swarmed around everywhere. Drinking and eating was a real nightmare, and I avoided, no matter how hungry I was, rice pudding, which was served up frequently, mixed with currants and dried fruit. It was difficult to distinguish currants from flies. They looked alike in this repulsive mixture. Immediately the lid was taken off the Dixie, the flies would swarm down and settle on the rim in a cluster, and many of them would fall into the pudding. The spreading of jam onto hardtack was indeed a frustrating exercise. Driven by the pangs of hunger, the hated apricot jam was tolerated of sheer necessity. A concerted effort by at least three of us to transfer the jam from the tin onto the biscuit was necessary. One to open the tin, another to flick away the flies, and a third to spread the jam and cover up. The ceilings of our bivouacs, a waterproof sheet, were black with flies crawling over each other and falling on top of us as we tried to rest. End quote. The corpses certainly didn't help the fly problem, and neither did the sanitation situation. There were open latrines all over the place, and even when they were covered, it often didn't stop the flies from finding a way in. With these masses of insects came disease, and a lot of it. Dysentery was near universal, paratyphoid nearly the same. Malaria had a habit of flaring up in any of the troops who had been in the Far East, and jaundice made an appearance as well. Will Cowley of the Army Service Corps would be one of the sufferers of dysentery and other diseases. Quote, Everybody felt so weak with dysentery, weak with dysentery and all the rest of it, that you'd got no strength. You know, you were so weak as a kitten, you could hardly walk about at times. Well, the doctor asked me one night how many times I went out to the back. I said, 16 times, doctor. 16 times. You rush out there, and when you get there, you couldn't do anything. Terrible. All of these hardships, not to mention the oppressive heat and the lack of clean drinking water, had to be suffered, all the while being in continual fighting with the enemy. We will begin our discussion about the actions of May, June, and July 1915 at Anzac Cove. When the Anzac had come ashore, they had not captured all that they were supposed to. In fact, they were stuck on a small beachhead surrounded by Turkish troops in better positions. This put the troops here in a different position than at Halles. At least at Halles, if they were forced to retreat, they could. They had some space to give. The troops at Anzac did not have this luxury. A retreat of just 20 yards in some sections of the front could result in the entire line coming undone and being pushed into the sea. This put a huge amount of pressure on every man in the front line. This also caused the Turkish leaders, including General Kemal, to attack again and again. It was just too tempting of a target. They could see as well as anybody else how close the situation was behind the lines. Peter Hart would describe the Anzac line in this way in his book Gallipoli. Quote, the Anzac line started in the south at the sea, uh, ran up Bolton's Hill, across the 400 plateau, all along the second ridge to Quinn's post. There it petered out, with a gap covered by firepower rather than trenches. The line resumed on Pope's Hill, then, after another gap, on Russell's top, 
where it faced the Turkish lines barring the neck and the route to Chunuk Bear. The line then progressed down the narrow Walker's Ridge to a series of small posts guarding the flank in the foothills by the sea to the north. Just a thousand yards deep at maximum, only 2,500 yards long, and much less than a square mile in total, it was a severely cramped environment. At some points, the line was just a few feet apart. There are even reports that at times, they were separated only by a line of sandbags. On both sides, the lines were becoming more and more solid, making any offensive action harder and harder. The makeshift entrenchments of the first few days were slowly being improved to be more permanent, and proper dugouts and strong points were being added along the line. Communication trenches were also dug to allow safer access to the front line. These communication trenches were important, mostly due to the sniper and artillery fire that was so prevalent. Since the depth of the area was so small for the Anzac troops, in the beginning, getting to the front line could be just as much of an adventure as being there. Very specific routes had to be taken to break up sight lines that the enemy shooters would try to use. Here is Captain Horace Vini describing how to get to one part of the line. Quote, to negotiate Monash Gully safely, one had to walk on alternate sides of it according to how the valley twisted and turned. Those who knew it could go up and down it comparatively safely by keeping under cover on one side until a twist in the gully exposed that side to the Turkish fire. It was then necessary to dart across the gully, a distance of some 10 to 20 yards, and gain shelter of the opposite bank. End quote. These types of tips and tricks is one of the big reasons that having really seasoned soldiers in the area was so useful when trying to launch attacks. As the lines became more static and the communication trenches were dug to protect moving to and from the front line, the wastage of men due to normal everyday fighting began to drop. The situation became just like on the Western Front. Here is Lieutenant Colonel William Malone of the New Zealand Brigade discussing his unit's entrenchments. Quote, we have terraced the ground so that the troops in reserve are together instead of being dotted around in all sorts of holes. We have made roads to the top of the hill at the back so that we can counterattack. Fire positions have been fixed for the supporting troops, and in less than a minute we can sheet the hill crest with lead from 200 rifles, the men being side by side in lines under their NCOs and officers. End quote. Also, like their Western Front brethren, the men at Anzac began to dig tunnels. The Australians originally had a leg up on this practice due to the presence of the Australian 1st Field Company engineers, who were primarily miners back in Australia. Both sides, however, would eventually get in on the game of digging tunnels out towards the enemy lines. They would then pack them with explosives and explode them right before an attack to disorient the enemy and provide cover. Well, when one side is doing something like that, you have to then try and stop them, so both sides had listening posts so that they would know where the enemy was digging. Then sometimes, two tunnels would run into each other, and they would be fighting underground, in the dark. Underground, in cramped tunnels. I'm not even claustrophobic, and it makes me want to go outside for a walk. The situation on the front caused at least one notable invention, that of the periscope rifle which seems to be credited to a Lance Corporal William Beach. The periscope rifle was simply a gun with a mirror mounted on it that allowed a shooter to look up from the trench and down the sights of the gun without having to expose himself. 
Obviously, this was pretty cool, and it gave the Anzac troops a bit of an advantage, at least for a while. The first major attack by the British troops would be a night attack on May the 1st. Thankfully for the Anzac, they had recently been reinforced by four battalions of the Royal Naval Division. The Turkish attack was fierce, using a bunch of recently arrived reinforcements, and it would be one of the largest of the entire summer. But it would be stopped. By the end of this attack, there were 14,000 Turkish casualties since the landings, with the Anzac having suffered 10,000. After this attack, it would be a few weeks before another major effort was made, and during that time, there was a set of small raids and patrols. Nothing huge, just keeping it lively, I guess. In the middle of May, the 2nd Turkish Division arrived on the scene, and it was very quickly used for another large night attack on May the 19th. The attack began at 3.30 in the morning, but the Anzac defenders knew it was coming due to intelligence and aerial observation. With this information, the attacks found themselves instantly assailed by a hail of steel in the form of infantry rifles, machine guns, and artillery fire. The attack was over just an hour and a half later, at 5 a.m. During this action, the Turkish troops suffered in the realm of 10,000 casualties, and the Australians had used almost a million rifle and machine gun rounds. So that's a lot. Peter Hart would have this to say about the Anzac positions by the end of May. Quote, the true situation was now clear to the Turks. While the Australians' positions looked weak, vulnerable to just a mighty effort to throw them into the sea, in fact, it had several inherent strengths that were not immediately obvious. It was almost impossible to cross a no-man's land, defended by alert infantry armed with bolt-action rifles and machine guns with artillery support, unless an artillery barrage was already suppressed their ability to open fire at the critical moment." End quote. This would be the last of the large-scale attacks by the Turkish army against Anzac. The Turkish tactics would change. Instead of launching large attacks, they would launch small attacks against specific targets in the line, like at the Neck, which was a very popular target. The Neck was chosen because even a small breakthrough would compromise a reasonably large section of the Anzac lines. One of these attacks was launched on the night of June the 29th. Again, the Australians knew that the attack was coming, and Lieutenant Ted Hinty discusses the action. Quote, it was much more satisfactory than the infernal pot-shooting through loopholes, though this is a fair sport now, as we are only about 60 yards apart at the widest, and in some places much less than that. To drop so many in that narrow space is not bad, is it? And speaks rather well for the alertness of everyone concerned, as it was a night attack. End quote. As July began, the Turkish attacks almost stopped, and for the rest of the summer, Anzac Cove would actually be a, a safish place to be, or at least one that neither side was really concentrating on. The Anzac troops would remain stuck exactly where they were for several months before the attacks in August were launched, which we will talk about next week. During the early summer of 1915, the real fight for Gallipoli was happening elsewhere, by the troops at Hales. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right, 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. While the fighting at Anzac was hard, it was mostly the Allied forces defending against the attacks of the Turkish troops. At Halles, it was mostly the other way around. From the landings on the 25th until several days later, there was near constant fighting all along the line. The men of the 29th Division, especially those that had started the invasion on V&W Beach, were completely exhausted. The British spent most of the day of the 26th of April reorganizing their lines and trying to get everybody in place for future attacks. One of the things that greatly assisted in this was bringing the French troops over from their landing zones at Coombe Cale to take up a spot in the line. As these men were trying to get ashore, along with the last pieces of the 29th, and all of the supplies to keep thousands of men supplied while raging war, it is no exaggeration to say that there was a massive traffic jam on the landing beaches. After all, there's a reason ports exist. It just isn't as efficient to land large amounts of cargo on beaches without the proper facilities. The French, when they had gotten ashore, took their position on the far right of the line, which was just fine, except for one fact. They were being constantly bombarded by the batteries on the Asiatic coast. You know, those things that they were sent to occupy while the 29th Division landed? That they then shortly left after the landings? I'm sure the men of the French Division did not fail to see the irony. On the 26th, these French troops were able to capture the castle of Sedalbar, and on the 27th, what would come to be known as the First Battle of Krithia began. This would be by far the easiest of the three battles of Krithia over the course of the campaign, because the Turkish reinforcements hadn't arrived in enough force to really put up a strong resistance. The Turkish leaders saw the writing on the wall and retreated further up the peninsula. This allowed them to gain a bit of breather before another attack, and it allowed them to consolidate their positions. Even with this small break, the Turkish defenders wouldn't have a continuous line to defend. Much like the entrenchments at Anzac at this point in the campaign, the defenses were mostly just a bunch of outposts that may be somewhat connected by trenches sometimes, but not most of the time. Because of this, the Turkish troops tried to use the terrain as much as possible which was great for them, since they had a better handle on the terrain than the British and French advancing against them. General Hunter Weston, commander of the 29th, planned for a large attack on the 28th of April, aiming for the village of Krithia, what the battle was named after. 
it is important to note how much the British objectives had already shrunk. Instead of aiming for the real campaign goal of Akibaba, he was aiming for this village that was far closer to the line. It would only be an advance of about a mile, and it would require a wheeling maneuver that required careful planning steps so that everybody turned at exactly the right time. Many of the units involved didn't get the orders in time, or misunderstood exactly what they were supposed to do, so when the attack started, even though they made pretty good initial progress, they soon started to sort of turn too soon, or turn too late, or turn too much or not enough, which meant that along the line that was supposed to be continuous, there was gaps as units started to lose touch with the units on their left and right. Couple this with the fact that the terrain was, as ever, difficult, and you end up with an advance that quickly found itself at a standstill. And just to put the cherry on top, this is when Turkish reinforcements started to arrive in strength, and the strung-out and disorganized British and French had quite a time of it to hold them back. The result of the First Battle of Krithia was 3,000 casualties, or give or take. And with the arrival of Turkish reinforcements, any real possibility of taking Akibaba was gone. As the days wore on, and more and more Turkish troops arrived on the scene, Levon Sanders would eventually have up to 15,000 troops standing in front of the British and French at Halles. As always, the Turkish commanders were very well aware of the power of the Royal Navy artillery, and therefore restricted themselves to strictly night operations. On May the 1st at 10pm, the first of these night attacks was launched. Lieutenant Henry O'Hara would be in the line. Quote, My regiment alone got through 150,000 rounds, and they were only 360 strong. The Turks were simply driven on to the barbed wire in front of the trenches by their German officers, and saw, shot down by the score. At one point, they actually got into the trenches, but were driven out by the bayonet. They must have lost thousands. End quote. While he mentions these German officers driving the Turkish soldiers, Peter Hart seems pretty skeptical that such a practice ever occurred, even though there are several veteran accounts that cite this type of activity. In this case, I'm inclined to agree with Hart. As daylight dawned, the French were able to use the naval assistance to push back some of their territorial losses the night before. On the night of May the 3rd, Sanders launched another attack. 2nd Lieutenant Raymond Ville was a French artilleryman who was supporting during this attack. Quote, we had massacred the Turks, but we also had a lot of casualties. And I was aware of one terrible fact. We had no more shells left. The artillery park was exhausted. All that remained at the batteries were empty limbers, but that was it. If the Turks attacked that night, we were doomed. End quote. The Turkish troops made some gains during the attack, but not as much as hoped. Lehman von Sanders was under no illusions as to why this was probably the case and why it was unlikely that Turkish attacks would have any great effect. Quote, In each case, daybreak brought an overwhelming fire from the ships, which compelled the Turks to withdraw to their positions. Only a part of the captured machine guns could be carried off. Painful as it was for me, I now had to give orders to abstain from further attacks on the Sedel bar front, and to remain on the defensive. Because of these facts, the Turkish generals were committed to stand on the defensive in the area, and to let the British attack them while resisting every square foot of territory lost. 
the British would find themselves on the attack for the Second Battle of Krithia, which would be launched on May the 6th. This was done after parts of the 42nd Division arrived from Egypt, but not all of it. It was hoped that more would be present, but Hamilton didn't want to wait any longer than he absolutely had to. Instead, the New Zealand and 2nd Australian Brigades were brought over from Anzac to participate in the attacks. The plan would be very similar to that of the first battle, with the French attacking and the British line wheeling to their right in an attempt to take Krithia. It was very important for the French to advance, or the rest of the line wouldn't be able to move properly. The bombardment began a little after 10.30 on the 6th, and one hour later the infantry began to advance. The French were immediately subjected to heavy fire, and made almost no gains. The British made even less. They came under intense fire as soon as they left their trenches, and those that did manage to somehow reach the Turkish line were stopped cold. There would be no fancy wheeling on this day. The attack was a complete failure. Another attack was ordered for the next day. Again, same plan. Again, same result. In true Western Front fashion, when faced with these failures, Hunter Weston just doubled down and tried again. This time, the New Zealanders would be the first to advance, and actually made some small amount of progress, but nothing worth the cost. The rest of the men attacked at 5.30 in the afternoon, and for a third time, there was no real gain. On May the 8th, the attack was finally stopped for a while, without any real gains and 6,500 casualties. Hamilton would write to Kitchener to describe the outcome of the battle. Uh, this is something that he did throughout the campaign to provide updates on the operations. Quote, the result of the operation has been failure, as my object remains unachieved. The fortifications and machine guns were too scientific and too strongly held to be rushed, although I had every available man in today. Our troops had done all that flesh and blood could do against semi-permanent works, and they are not able to carry them. More and more munitions will be needed to do so. I feel that this is a very unpalatable conclusion, but I can see no way out of it." End quote. Much like in other theaters in the Great War, the men just continued to dig deeper and strengthen their positions. I love this quote from Captain Albert Muir about how much he grew to love digging. Quote, I sometimes think that this war should go down as the War of Spades. Certainly the Dardanelles campaign was fought with that homely garden tool. I once heard a woman name 46 things that she could do with a hairpin. It was a poor soldier who couldn't name 64 to do with a spade after a month in Gallipoli. The first large effects on the British government would happen after the failure of the Second Battle of Krithia became known. The War Council met on May the 14th to discuss the campaign, and Kitchener, in what would become a familiar refrain, was against the idea of evacuating the troops, fearing the loss of prestige. Instead, the committee asked Hamilton how many troops he thought he would need to complete his objectives. Hamilton did a bit of back-of-the-napkin math and came up with the answer of three divisions, in addition to the 52nd Division, which was already on its way. It took him three days to respond to this request for more troops, and in that time, everything had changed. The Liberal government had fallen in London and was replaced by a coalition government that was still led by Asquith. There were a ton of reasons for this that we'll go into on a later date, 
but the result was that some of the previously outspoken voices in the government were now gone, Winston Churchill first among them. The new government was formed on May the 25th, but the War Council, now called the Dardanelles Committee, wouldn't meet until June the 7th. What this meant for Hamilton is that all he would have in the form of new troops for the foreseeable future were the 52nd Division, which was already on its way to Gallipoli. Given the situation, the lack of the reinforcements he thought he would need, and the Turkish strength, Hamilton decided to do something. Can anybody guess what it would be? Anyone? Anyone? Yep. Another attack. If at first you don't succeed, I guess. This attack was planned to occur before the 52nd Division even arrived, and again, it was because that it was obvious that every day that passed resulted in a stronger defense on the Turkish side. What it would mean, though, was that the two forces were roughly equal in strength, when on June the 4th, the Third Battle of Krithia began. This one had much less lofty goals than the first two battles, with the goal being the capture of just 800 yards of the Turkish lines, before the troops would dig in and wait for counterattacks. By this time, however, the Turkish troops had a nice, continuous, consistent line across the entire peninsula, so even the smaller goal would be difficult. At 8 a.m. on the 4th, the bombardment began on the strong points of the Turkish line, before a more general bombardment began at 11 a.m. At high noon, the troops went over the top. Private Jack Gatley was one of the men who participated in the attack. Quote, We scramble up and over the top, into a withering machine gun and rifle fire, with shrapnel bursting overhead. Many fell back into the trench before they got properly over. We spread out as we went, and charged with fixed bayonets through no man's land, which is all shell holes and deep crevices. We dashed on and on over barbed wire and shell holes, jumping gullies through thick gorse and wild thyme, knee-deep. This was on fire in many places, and we were choked by smoke and dust. The Turks were keeping up rapid rifle and machine gun fire, and as we got nearer, threw bombs amongst us. Also shrapnel bursting overhead, we were being mown down like corn. End quote. The next day, the advances stopped, and the Turkish troops counterattacked and pushed the Allies back off of most of what little gains they had made. There were even very few reserves to put into the line at this point, and as such, there was a serious danger of these attacks actually breaking through the line. The total casualties on the Allied side were over 6,000 men, with no gain in ground although the Turks did lose about 9,000, so it wasn't completely one-sided. The only bit of good news for the British was that the 42nd Division, finally fully arrived from Egypt, did a fine job in their attacks. When the Dardanelles Committee met after the Third Battle of Krithia, they agreed to send the three divisions that were requested to go along with the 52nd. They even offered to send two more divisions, partially due to the bad news coming out of Russia. This was right around the time that Germany was putting a ton of pressure on Russia and Poland that we will talk about later this year, and needless to say, the British were looking for any way to help out their ally. While these divisions were en route, Hunter, Weston, and Hamilton both believed that they had to keep up some kind of pressure on the Turkish troops. The problem was, at this point, they didn't have anything close to the number of troops required for a front-wide offensive, 
so instead they used strictly localized attacks, backed by all of the artillery on the peninsula, to bite off little pieces of the Turkish line. They would then move the shelling forward while the troops fortified their new positions. The French would be the first to use this tactic on June the 21st, against their old objective of Creve's Deer. The attack quickly overran the first line of defenses, and miraculously the second line as well, before they were stopped at a series of defenses called the Quadrilateral. Another of these attacks was launched on the 28th of June against the Gully Ravine by the British, and again it was successful. After these attacks, Hunter Weston planned an attack in the center, utilizing the newly arrived 52nd Division. Right before this attack occurred, the French were able to capture the quadrilateral, greatly increasing the security of the 52nd's right flank. When the 52nd Division did begin their attack, they weren't a complete failure. Instead of me describing the attack itself, I will just turn it over to Major General Granville Egerton. Quote, It seems to me that the fighting of this battle was premature, and at the actual moment, worse than unnecessary. I submit that it was cruel and wasteful. The troops on the peninsula were tired and worn out. There were only two infantry brigades, the 155th and the 157th, that had not been seriously engaged. This sort of demonstrates the problem with these attacks. They, they were very costly. Sure, they were making gains, uh, but the number of casualties being suffered was horrible. The 52nd Division, in just one attack, hurt its fighting capability significantly. The French, by this point, had pretty much driven themselves into the ground, which was one of the reasons that they actually began to suffer a smaller number of casualties than the British from here on out. The attack by the 52nd would actually be the last large-scale attack at Hales until August. As we will discuss next week, Hamilton had already begun looking at Anzac Cove, and the possibility of pushing out from it in combination with a landing at Silva Bay. Thank you for listening again this week. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash historygreatwar or at facebook.com slash historyofthegreatwar. I'd like to thank a listener of Vive for his donation this week, and I would just like everybody to just close their eyes and mentally send out a thank you to Aviv for making this possible. If you would like to donate, you can find instructions on how to do that at historyofthegreatwar slash donate.